0: Welcome to Unimed's Innovation Under—I've already screwed it up. Welcome to Unimed's Innovation Overground, where we dig into some of those amazing discoveries that we often hear about, but never seem to touch our lives. We're here to find out what it make what it takes to uh, make academic discoveries into actual things. Um, I'm here actually with uh, Joe Rungi. Say hi, Joe. Hi, hi Charlie. And I'm here with Tyler Schur. Say hi. Hi, Charlie. Uh, we both we all work at NIMAD, and we were standing around the office because uh, it seems like we do a lot of that. And we were talking a bit about some of the some of these issues that come up in tech transfer and and some of the myths that we encounter. And it gets a little frustrating. We thought, well, maybe we could do some of this myth busting with uh, with a podcast. Joe is actually your idea. I mean, what was the what was the motivation for you? I mean, this is our first one, so none of us really know what we're doing. Let's get that out of the way for our poor brave listeners right now. Right, both of you. <laughs> really, you think there's two? I <laughs> said poor and brave. Oh, I, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, what was what was the motivation for you to do this? Um,
1: um, that's a great place to start. Yeah. Yeah, I had not really thought about it.
0: Well, you know, before I, I maybe I should see, this is more evidence that we, we don't know what we're doing. I should do a better job of introducing you. Joe, you're a lawyer, J D. Um been working at Unimed for about ten years. Is I'm a right? lawyer scientist. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's like awesome. Tyler, you're I'm just you're just know. a plain old scientist, but you have a PhD, <laughs> which might make you the smartest person in the room. Probably. Uh,
2: maybe. I well you, know. you you turn in your uh, laptop. I would never say that. <laughs> I
0: wouldn't either, actually. Uh, So anyway, (laughs) so you turned in your lab coat two years ago, became a tech transfer guy because, what, you don't like science anymore? No, I
2: absolutely love science. Um, I just like being able to work on all the projects that work, that actually (laughs) pan out in the lab. So this is Uh, a chance to stay involved in science and only be working on the
0: stuff that works. So so experiments that aren't fails. Exactly. Got it. That's nice. Okay. So, Joe, (laughs) back to you now. Why are we doing this? Why are we here? Why am I sitting here, not at my desk? <laughs> this is your fault. I'm blaming you right now.
1: It's a beautiful studio. Um, man, that. Oh my God. So, what really surprised me was how many interesting stories there are in what we do and how many different ways there are to tell them. And starting at kind of this, this big level, I think the myth approach that you take is really important. There are a lot of times uh, when we got to the community where there are just simply pervasive beliefs people have about what universities do, about the type of work they have, about the type of opportunities that are present that are just hard to go against. We have a project right now which uh, a number of community investors are looking at, and they're just astonished that the university doesn't have millions of dollars to pour into it for further development. I
0: know when I first started at Unimed, I thought, you know, this place must be raking in the money.
1: Right. And if you look at a university, it's got lots of really pretty buildings, and it's got lots of really cool scientific stuff, and it's doing lots of really interesting things. But it's really hard to convey that in a meaningful way in terms of economic value, that there is so much potential value, and yet it's... Potential value
0: in what? What are you talking about?
1: So the research that goes on here, it's really fascinating. It's really interesting. It has a potential huge upside. But it is so risky. It is so uh, resource intensive to get value out of. It's like, it's like oil in the Gulf of Mexico on the moon, right? I mean, there, there is a need to get some sort of really complicated one-time-only rig that can actually extract all of that value. And so you have to sit there and say, yes, we understand. That it's on the moon and it's underwater. Oh, and the, the water is filled with sharks, and the sharks are hyper intelligent. But <laughs> bear with me. This oil is really good.
0: <laughs> so, what about you, Tyler? Did you have any thoughts about that when you were when you first came into tech transfer?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, I I also would have thought that uh, that companies would just be. Banging down our door to to get access to all of the awesome research and medical devices and therapeutics coming out of UNMC, it's a it is a great regional hub for innovation. There's a lot of really smart people doing really smart, innovative things. Um, uh, but that's uh, you know that's not the the, the whole reality here. That's there is some serious effort that has to be put in to all of these awesome ideas to get them. Um, properly de-risked, as Joe mentioned, uh, and uh, and vetted for um, a a, a company to come in and actually take it on as a product. How do you de-risk an invention, a
0: biomedical invention?
2: Yeah. So uh, with a lot of time and effort, and unfortunately, unfortunately, it can be pretty resource intensive as well. So with therapeutics, you have to have all of the, all the, all, all the lab studies done, all the all the in vitro tests done in the lab in mm-hmm. test tubes. And then you have to have sufficient animal studies done as well to show that there's value and, even more importantly, there's no harm being done to, to animals. And then you go beyond that. And that's this is where we have to partner typically with a company in order to go to the next level where you have.
0: I'm sorry to interrupt, but it, it sounds like that the de risking happens after they invest. That's what it sounds like to me.
2: Well, unfortunately, de-risking takes time and effort, all, all of which is paid for with money. Research, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's ways for us to access funds to de-risk some inventions, uh, but ideally <laughs> there would be some partnering going on with.
0: But where the funding well. come after the basic science? After you found that this new molecule might have something to do with pancreatic cancer, We're not really sure yeah. what, but we know that has something to do with it. Then what? Because yeah. the NIH, they're, ba- they're basically done. They've washed their hands of it and said, well, congratulations, you found a molecule.
1: Yeah. yeah. What so happens our, after that? So, so, so we're re- talking about the gap now, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, part of the problem is, is where that need for resources is incredibly intense. It's actually the hardest place to find money. I mean, it's not easy anywhere to get the money to do science, but there are existing places to apply for funds if you have an idea about a possible new molecule, right? That's research. And so the NIH funds that, and uh, private foundations fund that. And then if you're a company that has a sort of promising-looking molecule, there's capital markets. You can raise money to get investment in your pharmaceutical company. Those are much more mature. It's that sort of gap between them. It's like, hey, this could be an interesting molecule. Let's get some money to actually do some testing on it. Or... Um You know, let's try to get the group of people that we need in order to have the expertise to to really start delivering that. And and that's the the Valley of Death, uh, the Desert right. of Doom, um, it's <laughs> often referred to the as the trough
0: of failure or something like that. Right. You know, I, I I think
1: that it's it's a it's a dry, unpleasant place of bad things.
0: Yeah. Uh, right. But it, it seems like too. I mean, you've got. Um, I mean, even when you have a really good idea, even if it's a thing that doesn't take that 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 long road, you know, don't, you don't have to worry about FDA clearance necessarily, or at least not so many trials. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a device. Yeah. Um, you know, which kind of brings up the analogy: you you build a better mousetrap, people beat a path to your door.
1: You, no, no, don't don't ever say that. <laughs> okay. Listen, <laughs> both of you listeners out there, this is this is a lie. It is it is vile and contentious, and, and whoever said it. Um, I don't know who said it, but they're, they they did a huge disservice to the world because in reality, a good idea looks exactly like a bad idea. Wow. You know, the better mousetrap. It's impossible to actually show that this is necessarily the better mousetrap. You could sit there with your mousetrap demonstrations and your heaps of dead mice, and and, <laughs> and someone go, "Eh, I, I've seen five of those. What else you got?" Or it's like, "Well, if it's such a great mousetrap, how come nobody's buying it?" And there's nothing irrational about that, right? Hmm. I mean, if you look at it from the mousetrap investor's point of view, right, you know, they're sitting there, they got money to put in mousetraps, they got money to put in real estate, they got money to put into, I don't know, drug running, whatever, right? (laughs) I mean, there's so many places to simply make business investments. Why, in God's green earth, should they they actually invest in in your stupid mousetrap? And I think like one of the things that universities have, which we really need to lean into, is that yes, there are mousetraps, and yes, there are real estate, but we've got awesome stuff, right? And I think that's why people fall into that myth, right? Look at, um, we've got uh, uh, totally new approaches to treating cancer. We've got uh, really cool computer-assisted medical devices. We've got uh, uh, cell phone applications that help determine whether or not you have a progressive disease, right? All of these things are just interesting, and, and we could gas on endlessly about them in, in future podcasts. But I think the thing that's really important is while we may not have the best business investments on a pure return on investment, um, economically, there are huge return on investments for social benefit. And it's a really interesting story to be a part
0: of. So then it almost sounds like that you, while we're myth busting here, it sounds like we could say that there's, how rare is it that the innovation or the invention is is the big idea I mean, is it more often a little thing or is it more often, a, you know, the, the, the big thing that, uh, you know, drilling for oil on the moon?
2: Yeah. So it is, from my experience, it is more often a little thing. So these, it's these tiny increments. So, for example, I'm working with a local pediatrician, Dr. Donnie Saw. He works primarily on in infants and children to correct cross-eyed disorders uh, so he uh, has a very delicate surgical procedure he has to perform on the muscles that control eye movement in babies, and he has a hundred
0: tools. That sounds like a horrifying job. Why wouldn't anyone want to do that?
1: Yeah, everyone out there. It's S U H.
0: Saw. is pronounced yes. Donnie saw. saw. Yes, yes. But I, I just the thought of sticking needles and stuff in a children's eyes. Yeah. So he. It's a fun topic. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you're welcome. So he, yeah, he is. He'll talk for uh, at length for hours about. Uh, this is just his passion. It's his life's passion to correct vision, and it is a delicate procedure. But if you can do this in infants at as young as possible, you can. You, you're you're talking about a life-altering procedure. So you're able to correct this disorder yeah. before it before it has an impact on on their reading, their comprehension, their their hand-eye coordination, all of those things. And so
0: he's figured out a way to do this for basically pennies, right?
2: Yes, he'd uh, well, for for pennies. I don't know about for pennies. I guess, but he's he's so he's he's he anyway. He has hundreds of tools at his disposal um, that he could use to do this procedure, and he identified um, a few changes to make to some forceps, to a muscle hook, to a, a needle driver that that actually. He's, he's a complete perfectionist, so these little tweaks and changes—they look like minor adjustments—but they make a world of difference for him and how he does the procedure, and for his patients.
0: Grand scheme of thing, though. Excuse me. The grand scheme of things, though. We're talking about something relatively minor in scope and cost oh, compared dead. to, say, a new laparoscopic tool. Right.
2: Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. These these instruments only cost a hundred dollars or a few hundred dollars an instrument.
0: Yeah. But to improve someone's life forever yes pretty nice payoff but i mean that's that's not the kind of payoff i think people think about when they think about universities and patents and making money
2: no i I mean that's correct yeah so this isn't so this is where you know as we've been talking there's sort of a disconnect here between um an innovation that can have a, a a world of impact on a patient population and a a great business there's yeah there's a difference here i think
0: the thing we're dancing around that we don't really want to say is and i think joe you've said this before is that it's inherently icky to think about a university making money
1: right it is it's it should be a little uncomfortable i mean i think that especially the university of nebraska right we're a public institution and we take federally funded tax money to do scientific research which is a privilege Mm -hmm. you know that's something that you know, back when I was in the lab, I always remembered that, you know, I would have uh, regular jobs, you know, where you, you have to do what they say, right? And then you would come to the lab and you get to do what you want. Um, and it's really risky and it's hard because you have to find the way to get the funds to do it. But in the end, it is a privilege to be able to do scientific research on someone else's dime. And I think that maybe a part of why we need to bust these myths is that there is a sense that the public is paying for this research. So it better be good, right? right. It's got to be valuable. You know, we're all suffering for this. We're all paying for this, um, and I think that that's not wrong, right? I, I I don't. I would never say someone's wrong for thinking that, but I think the better way to to think of it is that just because we paid a lot for this research doesn't necessarily mean it has economic value, right? It's it's still potential value, and and that's maybe the nicest way to say it Hmm.
0: right interesting so is it okay for universities to make money off or to profit in some way from their research
1: oh i think it's more than okay i think it's required i think that if we are going to engage in this process of owning so universities uh even for federally funded inventions own the intellectual property that comes from it on a local level there are some strings attached but in the end if i take a federal grant i have an invention it is the university's responsibility to protect and commercialize that. It's not the federal government's. Uh, if there are private foundations, sometimes there's terms in those contracts. But in general, every major research institute has a group of people doing a podcast like this. right? <laughs> and so um, the, the, the point is is that we need to, one, accept that we are doing this on the public's benefit to a certain extent. But two, we also need to do it well that we need to actually realize that value and, and i think the first step in that is accepting that you can't just you know uh announce you have a mousetrap and expect uh several beaten paths to your door
2: i also want to push back on that on that general unease as well um there's for anything to be made into a commercially available product to ultimately help people uh that that inherently means someone's going to be making money off of it. So the university where some of those uh, inventions arose or originated uh, might as well be making some of that money as well to help f- uh, fund, ideally, further innovation that can help people.
1: And Tyler brings up a good point that it's not the university alone that's making money on most of these projects. Typically, universities are landlords. We have uh, portfolios of intellectual property. We lease them out to companies under license agreements. That's Typically, the model that we use at Unimed, uh, most of our value comes off of royalties from medical devices that have already been commercialized. A lot of our potential value is going to come from uh, very similar types of intellectual property. So it's not like the university has a factory churning out, you know, saw hooks. Uh, we partner with a company that makes them, and every time they sell one, they pay us a royalty.
0: And that's no different than anywhere else. It's just standard for, at least in this, in this country anyway. It's right? capitalism. It is, yes. Okay. Uh, we, we could do uh, we could do
1: Russian tech transfer, which is which is different. <laughs> I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm just saying it's a different model.
0: All right. Well, on that bombshell, uh, I think that's about all the time we have. Uh, we're gonna have to come to ground again. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, join us on Unimed's Innovation Overground.